Thank you for checking out the sermon at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you have access to other resources, information about who we are, and where we're going as a church, as well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing through our church. Once again, thanks for checking out this sermon. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. Last October, we began a verse-by-verse journey as a church through the New Testament book, of 1st Peter. And I don't know about you, but I would say what a journey it has been as we have discovered the incredible riches of the word of God that are found within this letter that Peter was writing. Believe it or not, over the next 3 weekends, we are going to bring this verse by verse journey to a close as we conclude the book of 1st Peter. And as Peter is ending this book, specifically in chapters 4 and 5, here's what he's writing to the believers about. He shared with them once again that they have a new life, a transformed life in their relationship with him. And one aspect of that new life is that they have a new perspective on everything. He's sharing with them that because Christ is in them and they are in Christ. That who Christ is shapes the way that they view everything that's around them. And he concludes in these last two chapters by sharing some examples of areas of life that are different because they have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He starts in chapter 4 by talking about spiritual living. We spent some time unpacking that. And then he moves on to the way that as believers, we're to view suffering. He talked to them about spiritual suffering. And then the last two weekends, we've been looking at what Peter taught as it relates to spiritual leadership. And over the the next three weeks, we're going to conclude this book by talking about the final example that he gives in a series that we're calling Spiritual Warfare. There is a painting that hangs in an art gallery in Europe. The name of that painting is entitled Checkmate. I have a copy of it here on the the table beside me. We're going to put it up on the screen. And I want you to notice a couple of aspects of this painting entitled Checkmate. You'll see here that there is a figure that is representing the devil who seems to be very arrogant and very much in control. You'll also see in this painting a figure that is representing a believer who looks to be confused, stressed out, defeated, and alone. And you'll see a third figure in this picture that is representing an angel who seems to be very much a helpless observer and bystander. You say, why are we looking at this picture 
that is hanging in an art gallery in Europe. Well, I bring that to your attention today because when we approach a subject like spiritual warfare, there are a lot of different ideas that come to people's minds. It may very well be that when you saw the image of that painting, there were some of the things represented in that painting that you believe to be true about spiritual warfare. Maybe it's the fact that the enemy looks to be in control. Maybe it's that believers seem to be defeated and discouraged. Maybe it's that the angel is a helpless observer or bystander. Well, as we begin the next three weeks to talk specifically about spiritual warfare, here's what I want you to know. What is represented in this painting could not be further from the truth. And so what I want to do as we begin the next three weeks is I want to give you a biblical framework through which we can view spiritual warfare And I want to do it in three words. Three very simple words that hopefully will construct for us a framework through through which we can understand what the Bible says as it relates to spiritual warfare. Now, obviously, this is not exhaustive. This is not everything that we know in the scriptures as it relates to spiritual warfare. But it will allow us to have a foundation from which we can build on for the next Three weeks. Here's the first word that I want to share with you this morning to build this framework of spiritual warfare. First word, reality. Reality. There is an unseen world, and the unseen spiritual world is just as real as the visible physical world that we live in. There is an unseen spiritual world that is very, very real. And in this spiritual world, both the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light are represented. There is good and evil. There is life and death. There is light and darkness represented in this unseen spiritual world. I love what Chip Ingram said. He said the Bible doesn't inform us of this invisible world in passing references or isolated verses here and there. The witness is resounding and pervasive. If the spiritual world of angels and demons is not reality, neither is the Bible. The context of the invisible world in Scripture is just that emphatic. It can't be rationalized out of the Word. So this morning as we come in here, the question is not, is there a spiritual unseen world? That answer is clear from the scripture. It's yes. It is a reality. So the question we need to ask this morning is, if this unseen spiritual world is a reality, what takes place there and how does that apply to my life? First word, reality. Second word. Urgency. Urgency. Not only is there an unseen world, but we are involved in an unseen war that is taking place within this unseen spiritual world. 
You see, what's taking place in this unseen spiritual world is not a chess match between two acquaintances. What's taking place in this unseen spiritual world is a war between two enemies. The word war has been defined this way. An organized effort in which groups engage in violent conflict to stop something that is viewed as dangerous or evil. I don't know about you, but when I hear a definition like that, I don't think subtle, I think serious. The conflict that is taking place in this unseen spiritual world does have eternal implications. Dr. David Platt said this, There is a spiritual battle presently raging for the souls of billions of men and women around the world. The scope of this spiritual battle is universal. It covers and and comprises every tongue, tribe, language, nation, person, and people group. There is no place on earth where this war is not being waged. The stakes in this spiritual battle are eternal. There is a true God over this world who desires all people to experience everlasting joy in heaven. There is a false God in this world who desires all people to experience everlasting suffering in hell. We do not have time to waste. The first word in our framework is reality. The second word in our framework is urgency. The third and final word in this biblical framework of spiritual warfare is victory. You see, there is a spiritual battle that rages every day. But the ultimate victory has already been decided by King Jesus. And it is critical for us as the church that we view all spiritual warfare in light of the fact that we win. Regardless of what you may be walking through, struggling with, or questioning today, we must view all spiritual warfare through the filter that we are ultimately victorious. One of the character flaws about me that I love but my wife hates is that anytime there is a reality show on where voting is involved, what I always like to do before any episode is I wait for that show to air on the East Coast. And once it airs on the East Coast, I Google the play-by-play to find out who got voted off, who got mad at who, you know, all those things. And so when it airs on the West Coast, I watch the whole show in light of already knowing what's going to happen at the end. Now that drives my wife crazy. That may drive some of you crazy. But let me just tell you, it is awesome for us. It is critical for us as the church that we view everything that is happening now in light of what's going to happen at the end. Because when you read the book, here's what you discover. We win. We're victorious. If you don't believe me, if you don't believe me, take your Bible and read Revelation chapter 20 and 21. It's page 
110 in my, 1010 in my Bible. You can read it for yourself. The Bible says that the church is ultimately victorious. And we must view all spiritual warfare through the filter that we win. In light of that, let me give you an application statement that I hope you never forget. As followers of Jesus, we do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. As believers in Jesus, as followers of Jesus, as we are engaged in this battle, we're not still fighting for victory. We're fighting from a victory that has already been won by King Jesus. 1 John chapter 4 says this, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So over the next three weeks, as we talk about this, this weighty subject of spiritual warfare, I want you to see it through these three words. Reality. It's a real thing. Urgency. It's a war. Victory. We win. Amen? Amen. So if you have a Bible this morning, look with me at 1 Peter chapter 5. And we're going to begin reading in just a moment in verse 6. And over the next two weeks, what we're going to unpack from this book is verses 6 through 11. We'll do a portion today, and then we'll do another portion next week. So look with me at 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 6. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to put this on the screen for you so that you can navigate along with us. The Bible says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Verse 8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So here's what we're going to do. Over the next two weeks, we're going to ask and answer Four key questions as it relates to spiritual warfare. We're going to ask two this week about our God. And we're going to ask two next week about our enemy. And so to really unpack these these answers about our God, we're going to examine verses 6 and verse 7 this morning. So here's the first question I want to ask and answer. Who is our God? I think it's very important as we talk about this war that is raging, this battle that we are in, that we first understand who our God is. It's very easy to drift in this type of conversation to only talk about the strategy of the enemy, the tactics of the enemy, the approach of the enemy, and we're going to get there. But for today, we want to start with understanding who our God is. Is. I meet people all the time who live life very 
uh, defeated and discouraged in a lot of ways. And they'll come to me and they'll say, Pastor, you know, I'm really, I'm struggling here. I feel defeated. I feel discouraged. I don't feel any sense of passion. How can I fix it? How can I fix it? And anytime there's a question like that, I always ask the same question to begin the conversation. And here's the question. Are you passionately pursuing deep fellowship with God? I always start there. Because if there's a person who's not walking in victory, in most cases it links back to them not pursuing deep fellowship with God. Because in him is victory. And I want you to know this today. I want you to hear me say this. The victory that we have ultimately will never be experienced daily apart from deep fellowship with God. The victory that is ours ultimately as the church will not be experienced daily apart from deep fellowship with God. Because when we find ourselves in a place where we've forgotten who our God is, we always feel like we are entering into this spiritual battle alone. But that could not be further from the truth. The victory that is, that will, that is ours ultimately will never be experienced daily apart from deep fellowship with God. I want to ask you a, a heart question this morning. As you consider what you know about God and what you have experienced personally through a relationship with Him, as you think about those things, what you know about our God and what you've experienced personally through a relationship with Him, does it stir anything inside of you? Or has your heart been so numbed by busyness and familiarity that you've forgotten who our God? Is. There are two words that I think, as I observe the church across our country, the church in North America, there are two words that I feel like are, are just missing, that are not present, that very much should be present. Here are the two words awe and wonder. Awe and wonder. When I left here several weeks ago to go on sabbatical, I was in a place where there wasn't a whole lot of that. That was just in me. And, and that wasn't a good thing. I was, I was confused by that. I didn't understand it. What had ultimately happened was I had let busyness and familiarity creep in and numb my heart a little bit. As it relates to me being in awe and wonder of God. And I was spending time with God on my break. And I came across a verse in Psalm 84 verse 2. And here's what it says. It's talking about the worship of God. The writer says, My soul longed and even yearned. Some translations say faints for the courts of the Lord. And I came across that, and honestly, here's what I said to myself. Where is that in my life as I reflect on who my God is? And there wasn't anywhere. 
It wasn't privately. It wasn't publicly. It wasn't in the car. It wasn't there. There was a missing component of wonder and awe in my life. And then I had to move from there and say, is it in our church? And I had to move from there and say, is it in our country? As you think about who God is in your life, would you say that wonder and awe are present because of it? Because for me, here's what had to happen. I couldn't just check a list and say, yep, I've been in awe and wonder of God today. You can't do that. I had to pray until I got there. I had to worship until I got there. I had to pursue him until I got there. A statement that I read um, that was very challenging was by a man named Richard Foster. He said, superficiality is the curse of our age. Another way to say that is shallowness is the curse of our age. And what I find is I talk to more and more people and I look at my own life. I find more and more that shallowness has taken the place of depth. And that we're involved in a lot of things. But we don't go deep in very many things. And because of that we found ourselves in a dangerous place. We find ourselves with more fear for the enemy than we have awe and wonder for our God. And so what I want to do is I want to unpack a couple of characteristics about God that are found in these verses. And what I hope is that in some way they evoke awe and wonder inside of you. That maybe this morning you just didn't come to be informed. You came to stand in awe and go deep in some stuff versus just being shallow in a lot of things. Here's the first characteristic that we see here. Our God is mighty. Our God is mighty. Look at verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Mighty is a word that tells of the power and strength of God. The Bible is saying that God is powerful. God is able. God is mighty. God is strong. One of the central texts in the New Testament as it relates to spiritual warfare is Ephesians chapter 6. And I want to read a portion of that scripture to you. And I want you to listen as we read. For all of the places that this text points us to the might and the strength of God. We're going to put it on the screen. The Bible says in Ephesians 6, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Multiple places in this key passage, as it relates to spiritual warfare, we are directed toward the strength of God, the power of God, 
who he is and our need for him. A second characteristic that is in these verses is this. Our God is personal. Look at verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for One of the natural questions for me as I read the totality of these passages. Last week, Pastor Vance unpacked this reality that we're supposed to clothe ourselves with humility. Meaning we're to consider other people as more important than ourselves. Well, one of the selfish questions that arises in me when I hear that is, well, who's going to take care of me? Well, if you look at verse 7 correctly, God is. He cares for you. You matter to him. I love this statement. God knows you the best and he loves you the most. I want you to think about that. God knows you better than anyone else knows you. And he loves you more than anyone else loves you. Now, typically what happens in human relationships is the more we get to know someone, the more we find out how weird they are, And the less we love them, in most cases. But it's different with our Heavenly Father. He knows everything about us, the good, the bad, and the ugly, yet He still loves us with an everlasting love more than anyone else could ever lavish on us. He knows you the best, and He loves you the most. He cares for you. He is our Father, our Shepherd, our Counselor, our Redeemer, our peace, our anchor, our creator, and our sustainer. There is nothing in your life so big that it overwhelms him. There's nothing so small in your life that it's insignificant to him. He cares for you. Peter answers this unbelievable question of who is our God with two characteristics. He is mighty, strong, and powerful. Yet he is personal and caring and loving to his children. That's who our God is. Well, the second question I want to ask is if that's who our God is in these verses, how do I relate to him? If that's who God is, how do I relate to him? Well, ultimately, the only way that we relate to God is through his son, Jesus. You see, because of our sin... The gospel teaches us that we are incapable of a relationship with God. Our sin has separated us from him and caused us to be spiritually dead. But God in his love sent his son Jesus to make a way where there was no way. And through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, we now have an opportunity by putting our faith in the finished work and life of Jesus to have access to God. We can know him in a relationship. And as we walk in this relationship that we have with God and we get to know him, there are things that are going to happen as a result of that. And Peter also in these verses specifies what are some of those things that will take place when you and I really understand who our God is. So I want to conclude this morning by giving you three things that will take place When we truly understand who our God is. Here's the first one. When I understand who God is, I will humble myself before him. 
I will humble myself before him. It's what Peter is talking about here in verses 5 and 6. Humility before God is the byproduct of understanding who he is and who I am. And I know in my life, there's, there's some clear ways that I can know if I'm genuinely being humble before God or if I'm just kind of doing lip service at different points in my life. One of the ways that I know I am genuinely humbling myself before God is the attitude of my heart. I love what Louis Giglio said. He said, admitting we are not God, not in control, not running anything, not responsible for everyone's well-being, not the solution for everything and everyone, not the center of all things, doesn't belittle us. It frees us. I believe when there's genuine humility before God because we understand who he is, what he just said is the attitude of our heart. Lord, it's all about you and it's all up to you. And I am free to enjoy my relationship with you and to live your purposes here on the earth. I have to check the attitude of my heart to make sure that before God I'm genuinely being humble. Another way that I I test the genuine humility in my heart is this. I look at the priorities in my schedule. You see, there's one way of thinking that says, God, you are my schedule, and everything else fits around that. But there's another way of thinking about the priorities in your schedule. That is, okay, here are all the things that are going on. Now, where does God fit into this? And I believe when there is genuine humility before God, everything starts and ends with him. If you're in a place today where you're trying to figure out where does God fit into your schedule, you have missed the moment of understanding who God is and living with your hands open genuinely before him. Because when that takes place, he's the priority. He is supreme. He is the primary. And he takes care of everything else. When we understand who God is, We will live humbly before him. I love what Jim Elliott said. He said, I think the devil has made it his business to monopolize on three elements. Noise, hurry, crowds. Satan is quite aware of the power of silence. A second result when we understand who God is is that I will trust his timing. When we really understand who God is, we will trust his timing. He says in verse 7, verse 6, that he may exalt you at the proper time. You see, our ways are not God's ways. And so our timing is different than God's timing. He is working for and from eternity. In most cases, we are working for and from today. God is working to conform us to the image of his son. In most cases, we are working to get through whatever is right in front of us. But the Bible says here that when it comes to God's timing, there is a proper time. And I know this is a really big deal. It is for me. 
So I want you to hear me say this this morning. Regardless of your situation, God has not messed up. He has not forgotten. He is not fumbling for an answer. He has a proper time. And as we understand who he is, we come to the place of embracing that even though his timetable might not be like my timetable, his timing is always best. A third and final result that happens as a result of us understanding who God is is that we will cast our cares on Him. When I understand who God is, I will cast my cares on Him. The last part of verse seven, first part of verse 7 says, Casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. The word casting is an interesting word. It means to throw something upon someone or someone else. It's the idea of of literally throwing something upon someone or something else. The word anxiety is also a powerful word. It means cares, concerns, things one is worried about. So what's the Bible saying? The Bible is saying we're to take our cares, our concerns... The things that keep us up at night and weigh on us during the day. And we are to literally cast those onto our Heavenly Father. We're to to lay those at His feet. We're to roll those onto Him because we were not created to carry them. And He is able to carry them. And I believe it's really another manifestation if we are truly humble before God. We have no desire to control anything. And when you finally reach the place of no longer wanting to control your family, your schedule, your job, your situation, guess what's the only thing you can do? Cast it onto your Heavenly Father. Something else Louis Giglio said that I thought was powerful. He says, the human frame wasn't created to carry the weight of the world. So here's the invitation in this last part of the verse. The invitation here is to let go of what you were not made to carry and cast it onto a God who is completely able and who has the heart of a father. That's what this text teaches us about our God. That he's mighty. That he's personal. And that for us as believers, when we really understand who he is, here's the byproduct. We're going to humble ourselves before him. We're going to ultimately trust his timing even when we don't understand it all. And we're going we're to cast our worries. We're going to cast our cares on him knowing that he cares for That's the God who's in the battle with us. That's the God who's fighting for us in this battle that takes place in the unseen world. I hope this morning that you have gotten some clarity as it relates to really the big pieces in spiritual warfare. But more importantly, who our God is in the midst of this serious battle. Let me encourage you. Next week we're going to be talking about our enemy the other side of this conversation. So let me encourage you to be here as we continue to move through this wonderful book called First Peter.